Welcome to today's St. Paul's Church of the Voyager podcast. I'm Pastor Rob Fiesler, and I am glad that you are listening today. Remember my text that said catastrophe. Uh, Zoom doesn't hold on to the videos that long. Uh, You know, so if the space runs out, they just take them. And so they didn't even tell tell me. They they were gone. We had one session that was there and none of the others. And, And they had been going very well. But our consensus was that... Um, trying to start over again immediately, we would have too much in our mind where we were trying to talk about the same things we talked about in the way that we talked about them. And it was so perfect the first time. It was so perfect the first time that we said, okay, we're going to take a break. And then, and then uh, here is what we decided to do is to try and um, record them here in this setting and make it available for people to come. And so what we're going to do is we're going to be walking through this. I gave you the handout, but we'll be doing about two 22-minute sessions tonight. It will cover some of the ground if you were in other classes, but it will also cover different ground. And and so I will be trying to speak, and Dr. Lodol will be trying to speak as if we're recording a podcast, because we are. But what we'll do at the... We'll take a break after session one and quit recording. And then if you have questions, we'll write them down because we may be covering it. We may already be planning to cover it in another session, but we may not have thought of something that we should uh, cover in another session. And then after we get those questions, take a little break, then we'll record session two. And so I'm glad that you guys are here. I think we're glad that there's... There's people in front of us. Though we were having a great time uh, the last time that we were here, or while well, we were on Zoom, I should say. And, uh, but it's great to have you here. And, uh, and we'll hope that a few more people do arrive as, as time goes on. So Austin is up in our sound booth, and he's going to record us. And, um, and I'll say some introductory things before we get started. I'm going to try not to refer to the handout because, of course, people on a podcast will not be looking at a handout. So I'm going to try and speak descriptively so you just get bonus material is what this means. Okay? All right. Uh, tell me when we're ready to start recording, Loss. It's recording. Oh, okay. Good. Well, I want to uh, welcome you, Dr. Lodal, to our study, our podcast that we're producing, What the Bible Is and isn't. And um, 
kind of to give people who are listening uh, a layout of our trajectory, uh, what we're going to do initially is talk about what uh, the historic creeds of the church say about Scripture, and that's really going to be the focus of session one. And then in session two, we're going to jump ahead a little bit to some more recent articulations of what Scripture is, skipping over a whole lot of stuff in the middle, and we will begin at the end of that to discuss a little bit about Scripture, and then we'll have two or three sessions on Scripture before we then go back and uncover what people like Augustine and uh, Martin Luther and Calvin, John Wesley, uh, meant when they were talking about Scripture and its authority in our lives. And so I thought that we might start by simply clarifying some terms for people who are listening uh, to understand. And, and so I, to have a mental picture of a bullseye and understand, I'll get to the middle of the bullseye in just a minute, but in the, the ring right outside the bullseye is what I would call dogma. And dogma is what Christians across various denominations, without much difference, have always and everywhere agreed that God is creator, Jesus is Savior, the Holy Spirit is sustainer. These are the types of things that I'm thinking of when we talk about dogma. And then when we go out another ring, then we're starting to talk about doctrine. And doctrine, there's a little bit more variety. And uh, doctrines are those things that certain denominations are churches value, but others may not. So, for example... Uh, infant baptism is something that we practice in the United Methodist Church. Do Nazarenes do infant baptism? We give uh, allowance for it, but it's sort of not really practiced. Okay. And, and some people would say, no, none of that is okay. It has to be adult baptism. So that's a doctrinal difference. And there's a lot of doctrinal differences when it comes to Scripture across denominations and churches. And then the most outer layer is opinion. And those are things where there's a lot of room, even within denominations, uh, for people to to disagree. But I I would say that the middle of the bullseye and the place that we always, uh, at least as Christians, right, want to uh, ground ourselves is in the words of Jesus. So we want to look at how our doctrine and our dogma and our opinions cohere to Jesus and, and, and to the testimony of Scripture. So... You like it? The one thing, I, I, the only thing I would add is um, on when I hear doctrine, and I like what you said, I would just sort of emphasize a little more that uh, not only are there doctrines that are sort of particular to traditions and denominations, but doctrine to me always gives the, the sense of a long, ongoing conversation um, so that there can be some, there's some, some difference and it's worked out and, and sort of sometimes debated and argued about, but it's over like a long period of time. It has this historical conversation dimension that I think is less, you know, dogma is a little more, yeah, as you said, these are the hardcore kind of universal Christian convictions. I think of doctrine always with a much more conversational 
tone to it. I like that. I like it too. Uh, and, and certainly opinion and doctrine are, are a lot of argument around both of those topics. Sure. So I thought we'd start, since we're, uh, we're looking at what Scripture, what the Bible is and isn't, I think the first thing to look at are the historic formulations whereby uh, Christian communities formed and shaped themselves and said, yes, this is what it means to be Christian if you're outside of this then that you're outside of Christianity. And so I, I, I think the first uh, creedal formulation is actually just straight from Scripture, right? Yeah, I think so too. Jesus is Lord. Yes. And that is yes. the length of it, right? In Romans, yeah. Yeah. I think 1 Corinthians 12, yeah. Yeah. And then as uh, time went on, you know, in the second, third century, we have what's called the old Roman symbol, which morphed gradually into the Apostles' Creed. Yeah, sometimes it's also called the rule of faith. The rule right? of, okay. And I think associated with Rome, uh, you said the old Roman symbol, because uh, the church at Rome was so central to early Christianity, and they, had, they housed one of the earliest debates that I think was, in fact, a one of the things that prompts the what we call the Apostles' Creed now that we believe was originally a baptismal ritual. Mm. Like, do you believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth? And the person would say yes. And, mm -hmm. and after, after three yeses, they would get baptized. <laughs> um, but, you know, uh, at Rome, that was addressing, we're quite sure, the teaching of Marcion, who had come to Rome, and it actually made a difference between God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and the Father of Jesus Christ. And so mm. they were not the same, that uh, the, the, God, the creator God was an inferior God, tribal deity, mm. bloodthirsty, you know, legalist. And then you have the Father of Jesus, and we're all sort of familiar with, and we sometimes voice that tension that we feel between, we'll say, the Old Testament and New. Marcion took it to a whole new level. Um, and split them into two and denied that Christianity had anything to do with that Jewish thing. And so the Apostles' Creed actually is addressing that right away in that first confession. Okay, so that is against Marcion. The, against the Marcion, Creed yeah. is to fix the mistake. I won't say that it's only that, but it's definitely like right there on the surface. Okay, and yeah. so that is really early, right? Yes. In, in 300 that we're thinking Well, we're talking middle of the second century. Okay, okay, that it's One, more. 140, 150. Okay, okay. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And then, and, and in none of these so far, right, is there a statement about Scripture? No. Right? No statement about Scripture. Okay. <laughs> and then we, the Apostles' Creed is evidently not sufficient enough, so the, we have the Nicene right. Creed, the Council more, of Nicene. More heresies came along. <laughs> okay. And that was in 325. Yes. And then it was amended. Later. It was slightly, or added to. Added yeah. to. Uh -huh. And that is in, in where I see the first time that Scripture is even alluded to. Uh, mm -hmm. And it says that Jesus rose again in accordance with Scripture. Right. But there's no dogmatic or doctrinal... Statement about the Scriptures. About what Scripture is. Right. We could add this, that that phrase, of course, I was thinking about that phrase even before... Uh, you mentioned it, 
that Paul, that comes from Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, right? That, and it's, in fact, it's interesting because Paul says, I handed on to you Corinthians what was most important, what I had myself received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. So there's that. And that he was buried. And it doesn't say in accordance with the scriptures to that. It just, and he was buried. And that he was raised in accordance with the scriptures. Oh. So you do have that uh, allusion. And it's clearly, of course, to what would have been the scriptures for Paul, which would have been what we now call more or less the Old Testament. Um, now, the Nicene Creed is not using it quite the same way as Paul did, but in both cases, they're not making a statement about the scriptures, except we might say, except as a faithful testimony regarding Jesus. Okay, yeah. okay, great. And then, and then I note that there's other creeds there, uh, that we're less familiar with, probably right. as, as Protestants. Right, uh, right. The Chalcedonian Creed that comes in 451, which is not that much later than the Nicene Creed. Not that much. And then the Athanasian Creed, right. which is, but I know they don't, again, they don't talk about Scripture. They don't even right. say in accordance with Scripture. Right. Right. So, so from all of those creeds, what we end up with is the early church, is this correct? The early church really didn't have a statement of what you had to believe about Scripture. I don't think so. I, in fact, think about what they are concerned about is what they believed were uh, um, incorrect or unfaithful interpretations of Scripture. So there might have been some assumption about the nature of Scripture, but there isn't like, here's a statement about it that you need to believe. So again, you have Marcion in the second century who is saying something very explicit about the Jewish scriptures. They're not for Christians. You know, Jesus, he wants to deny that Jesus had anything to do with Judaism or anything. Well, the church says, no. You know, in accordance with the gospel testimony about Jesus, we're rejecting that teaching. But Marcion probably held just as high a view of the New Testament as other Christians did, or at least his version of it. So that it isn't a matter of like, do you believe the right things about the Bible? It's, what are you doing with the Bible? How are you interpreting it? And I see the creeds as more like rules or guides for interpreting the scripture rather than saying anything about the scripture. Again, that may imply some things about the nature of scripture or the Bible, but there isn't like some kind of definition of the Bible's authority or, or the nature of its inspiration. Yeah. So that raises two, two things for me, and just to clarify. So we normally say, I believe in God the Father Almighty. I yes. believe in Jesus Christ. I believe in the Holy Spirit. We do not, as many do today, I believe that the Bible is God's holy word. Right. That's a really late breaking. It's much later. Okay. Yeah, I mean, that kind of statement is much later, for okay. sure. And then the second piece I wanted to bring up is Marcion, did he have all of the books of the New Testament? Was he, was, or was that No, a because, I mean, nobody would have had, well, we don't know for sure. What we do know is that Marcion, in the middle of the second century, uh, had his own version, we'll say, of the, of the Bible. Uh, and what we're told is that he had a, the Gospel of Luke, 
But he had to edit that down because it, that's the only one that tells us that Jesus got circumcised, which is a very Jewish thing, and, and that Jesus was dedicated in the temple as a little baby. Only Luke tells us these things. I believe that we believe that Marcion said that stuff was added later by these Jewish Christians, but that's not really part of the gospel. He also did the same thing with Paul's letters, um, sort of took some scissors to them and cut out anything that sounded Jewish or, or gave it Jewish roots. So that actually is a very crucial thing, and maybe we should uh, dwell on it for a second when we think about Scripture. Um, he's talking about, again, what we now call the Old Testament or the Hebrew Bible. And um, the church, being fairly Jewish in its beginnings, of course, actually pretty much just accepted the Jewish canon. I mean, like, in other words, we never had an official decision. We're going to take Genesis and all that. Other than to say, Marcion, we reject your idea. So the flip side of this, we trust basically the Jewish process over the years of deciding on an authoritative body of text. Mm. So that's, to me, kind of an interesting thing. Mm -hmm. Again, it doesn't necessarily give a specific teaching about the nature of those scriptures other than that they do reveal the will and the word of God, for sure. In thinking about Marcion and wanting to excise yeah. the, the, the Jewishness right. of, of any of the New Testament writings and then totally leaving aside the Old Testament, you know, not only Luke, but so many of the other Oh, yeah. Scriptures would have had to have been... So deeply immersed in Jewish, not just language, but history, tradition, you know. And Luke is, Luke is the only gospel that tells us that Jesus made a habit of going to the synagogue on the Sabbath. So I, I, I used to wonder, why in the world did Marcion think that Luke was his friend in this? But he really believed that he was the one that understood the Apostle Paul and he knew the teaching and tradition that Luke had been Paul's traveling associate. So I think by default, he decided Luke was his gospel, but then had to take out so much of it to come up with this kind of rootless Christianity apart from any Jewish presence or influence or history. I think one more thing that we might cover here is what that reflects about what the early church thought about Scripture. Mm. Because what's clear from what you've said is they did esteem what Paul would have referred to as Scripture, the right. Old Testament. Right. And yet, it does not appear that they felt a compulsion to like, define what was, what was the Scripture, yeah. what was the sacred writ. For, for it was more, I think it was more fluid at that time. And mm. when you mentioned Marcion, I, I forgot to mention this part. Uh, he probably was aware of the four Gospels because we have other writers roughly of his time. So he's made a conscious choice to go just for Luke. And, but what we don't have definitely at that time is a New Testament. Okay. Right? This is, that's into the next century what we have are collections of Paul's letters that get circulated among churches, maybe a collection of four Gospels, probably sometimes just a Gospel or two in a particular community, 
but a lot of sharing and sending it around in various places and remembering that most people were not literate, so they would have been depending on some reader you know, on any given Lord's Day or Sunday morning when they uh, gather to hear the scripture read. Um, I know that uh, Justin Martyr in the middle of the second century refers to the Gospels, and I love this phrase, as the memoirs of the apostles. The memoirs. So, you know, he's definitely not seeing them as, I mean, you know, whatever a memoir of the apostle is, um, it's clear that he sees it as written by followers of Jesus and testifying about Jesus, mm-hmm. because that's the real, to me, that's the bullseye, as you said yeah. earlier, Jesus is Lord, and that's, that's really where the second century church is trying to focus its attention, I think. And just one more thing, because I think this is important to, to locate. It is really in 367, right? When Athanasius... Right, right. But really says, names the 27 books. Right. It's the, the first listing that we have that corresponds. To our New Testament. With our New Testament. And yet, there was at that time, and certainly not for a long time, a, a thousand years, an official statement, these are the books right. of our New Testament. That's our earliest listing that corresponds but again, I think we have to recognize that it's a much more fluid situation there in terms of, um, I think really for the church, um, and this kind of makes the same point I was just making one more time, the church is asking who's, whose testimonies about Jesus are closest to Jesus? Mm-hmm. So it's not like they have some sort of meter to figure out how degree of inspiration, is this a... It's much more, are these eyewitnesses or people within a generation of being eyewitnesses and earwitnesses of Jesus? So that there's this historical proximity that's important as opposed to simply having a list and saying, and these are somehow inspired texts because Jesus is understood to be that ultimate word in Revelation, Jesus himself. I think that's a perfect place. (sighs) I love stop. that. Stop. <laughs> uh, Jesus is it at the bullseye. Sounds good. All right, so we'll stop there. All right. Uh, woo. <laughs> we stayed on it. So, so a little bit technical, but I was just wondering like, if it, that raised any questions for anybody that I should write down. And when everybody volunteers at once, it's very overwhelming. So <laughs> don't do that. Please don't do that. <laughs> Yes, Denise. You do now. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. He was a bad guy. <laughs> yeah, the Marcionite heresy. Right? Yes. 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 Yeah. Okay. All right. Oh, I'm sure. For the yeah, in the middle of the second century, yeah, that'd be the widespread, you know, worship of the emperor and uh, and of the gods. I think they were pretty. They were pretty lenient. You could you could do your own thing as long as you also gave patronage to the emperor and so on. So, 
Rome tried to, you know, give people space, but um, they especially seem to have regard for Judaism because of its ancient pedigree. Uh, and that became a real issue. Like if Christians, and Christians tended to refuse to offer, um, you know, um, incense or whatever kind of offering toward the emperor or gods, because you really did have kind of a civil religion. And, if, and Christians often got accused of being atheists because they would not do this. For a little while, they could be seen as under the protection of Judaism. Right? If Judaism is this ancient practice, Rome would respect that. Once the, the split between Jews and Christians began to widen, and it actually became a way that uh, Jews who were, did not believe in Jesus could... Um, like in a sense, persecute Christians without having to do anything other than to say they're not part of the Jewish community, these people, these so-called Christians. So that made Christians much more uh, uh, vulnerable to persecution. And of course, that ramped up actually as the second century continued. Mm -hmm. uh, generally, Rome would pro you know, I mean, if, if you were willing to g give your little pinch of incense... They didn't really care, they, and, and pay your taxes, of course. Um, but, if, but if things got bad, like if there was a famine someplace or an earthquake someplace, then the local populace would look for a scapegoat. And, uh, and that was often Christians. And, and then if the Christians didn't have like that, again, this protection of being somehow associated with Judaism, it made them very vulnerable to military um, action because that's what the people of that particular area might clamor for. So, so uh, does it surprise uh, anybody to learn that there's really nothing about scripture or does that make sense that there's nothing in the early creeds of the church about really about what you believe about scripture to be considered part of the in crowd? You heard a letter, I think, by, from a theologian by the name of Athanasius. There are two separate things. The Athanasian Creed is there a There is a creed that's matter. named after him. By the way, i got to tell you, this guy was... Can I just tell you real quick? You I'll get some water. Okay. We'll... Athanasius was... He's one of our earliest people that we actually have a physical description of. So I can tell you that he was short, long red hair... Great dark skin, great big nose. I always think of, uh, is, I think Jim, Gimli is the name of, in the Hobbit movies, I think of that guy as Athanasius because he was also, he was a fighter. I mean, he got exiled five times during his lifetime uh, for uh, opposition to, basically to Roman. Uh, when, 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 he got actually exiled. Well, we'll just say he got exiled five times. And this was after Christianity had been declared uh, acceptable and even the Roman uh, religion after, you know, early fourth century. But he was so uh, determined in his arguments uh, with a guy named Arius especially. So he gets, but here's the part I, I love. 
there's actually a letter written by Emperor Constantine where he's complaining to somebody to whom he's writing the letter about this little Athanasius guy who, here's the emperor riding through a village on his regal horse and Athanasius grabs the reins of the horse to hold the emperor there while he lectures him on some point of theology. <laughs> like, I'm the emperor. <laughs> Leave me alone. But uh, that's Athanasius anyway. And it is a letter of his where we actually do get this listing of the 27 documents that are now part of our New Testament. Yeah. Yeah. Which person are we talking about now? He's late enough. He's not a Jewish person. Uh, here's here, What happens... Here's an irony for you. Um, I hope I can put this in, you know. So here, this guy named Marcion, whose dad was a bishop. So he came from, you know, he had some clout. And he comes to Rome and he starts teaching this thing about, you know, the God of the Jews. We don't worship that God. Jesus' father is a different God and that's the God we love. And he actually saves us from this creator God who stuck us in this miserable world. So that's kind of Marcion. So the church says no to Marcion, but uh, unfortunately keeps an awful lot of his anti-Judaism. So like we hang on to the Old Testament, but we, we really still really want to differentiate ourselves from Jews, especially by this time. See, your question reflects more like in the first and second century where a lot of Christians were Jews. Man, by the time you get to Athanasius in the fourth century, I don't know what percentage of the church was Jewish, but it would have been a very low percentage. Mm -hmm. I, I doubt if it was 1%. Mm -hmm. I, I imagine it was well under 1% by then. And of course, Christianity had spread widely among the Gentile populace by then. So it kind of depends on what era you're talking about in terms of, and of course by the fourth century, the church didn't need uh, the protection of the synagogue anymore because the church had become the legally sanctioned religion uh, by Constantine. And, and that made actually the synagogue in trouble. That's because once, unfortunately, when the church had that kind of power, uh, we, we have often not exercised it very well, responsibly, or lovingly toward uh, the Jewish people, in, in my and many other people's judgment. Yeah. Yes, early enough it was a question, can these Gentiles even be a part of this? Yes, and I'll tell you real quickly what I think really made the, the big difference there. Paul's already concerned about this. You know, you can read about it in the book of Romans. He's concerned about the non-Jewish Christians in Rome, and he warns them about taking a, an attitude of superiority uh, toward the Jews. Uh, however... What happened, and so, but here's the deal. At the same time, Paul is the apostle 
to the Gentiles. He's called to preach to the Gentiles. And he wins the big argument about what, on what basis do Gentiles get to become Christians. Because a lot of Jewish missionaries said, sure they can, but they're going to have to, the men will need to be circumcised and, and they'll all have to take on the Jewish laws. And, and this is what the book of Galatians is all about. And Paul rejects that and he's very adamant about it. So what happens? Um, Paul wins that argument and the church becomes increasingly Gentile, where non-Jewish, where the people that are being won to Christ don't have a background in the Torah or the Old Testament. And they're not quite sure what to do with it. They don't want to be like Marcion, but they're still like all these rules. What are we supposed to do with all these rules? And, and so what happens is it becomes less and less attractive to Jewish people, not simply because it's more and more Gentiles, but because the place of the Torah is becoming, you know, minimized. And so I think there really is some real good reasons for this, what is often called the parting of the ways by the end of the first century, and definitely becomes more pronounced in the first half of the second century and, and then from then on it's just you know sure I think then uh, I think there's more of that cultural notion now I mean certainly it was cultural then too but then I think the cultural and the religious would have been much more tightly bound you know what I'm saying I mean I'm sure there were some Jews that uh, didn't believe all the stuff you know but but generally the Jewish culture then would have been pretty deeply religious certainly in pr practice and so again I think the bigger issue was what is the place of what we call the law or the Torah and um, you know for Jews and Judaism, this has always been the great gift of God to the people of Israel. And, we, and, and the church has always been a little more, or a little, a little more ambivalent about that. You know, and clearly we don't go, yeah, let's get out there and obey all those laws. So and I think that became less and less attractive to Jews. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Wow, a lot Fun of stuff. stuff. A lot of stuff. <laughs> I, I, love, uh, I love how much... Dr. Lodal knows, <laughs> a professor of, of theology and world religions, and I, I think it's important to say, I think one of the things I've noticed is how much he esteems the, the, the uh, religions of Abraham, uh, yeah, Judaism, Islam, Christianity, he wants to be in interreligious dialogue and appreciation yeah. uh, while maintaining, you know, Definitely the core Christian of identity and commitment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 All right, Thanks. so I, I, I think, Austin, you're probably just recording all of this, right? And I'm just going to have to figure out where to splice it. All right, so, uh, so we're going to go ahead and get started on the second part that's on the back. Nice. And, um, and let's see, I'm just going to leave a little break here so that we know that session two mm -hmm. is starting now. So in our last uh, or first uh, session of our, the podcast, What the Bible Is and What It Isn't, we really began by talking about historic creeds and what they contained 
and what they didn't, and in particular, what they don't include, are statements of belief about what Scripture is. And I think, I think the question is, well, was that just assumed? Mm-hmm. Scripture was so well regarded that it was assumed. Some of the things you talked about suggested that that couldn't have been assumed. But could you say just a little bit? Boy, that's, that's, a, that's a good question. I do think that it was assumed that God speaks or spoke, to use the language of Hebrews, spoke to our ancestors through the prophets in many ways. And so there's definitely a conviction that God spoke and speaks to us through these texts. Um, I'm even, if, in fact, if you go a little bit further in, in Hebrews, that little uh, document in the New Testament, um, Hebrews in one place talks about the Holy Spirit speaking through David to the people. So you get a very strong, you know, and it's about today if you hear his voice, pay attention. Same document, Hebrews, has another place where it says, Somebody somewhere has testified, and, and it, it's also quoting the Old Testament. It's Psalm 8, you know, what is man that thou art mindful of him? And I was just thinking about this in preparation for our conversation, that the book of Hebrews um, definitely can say God speaks, spoke and speaks to us through these words. But it can also say, um, not even remember that it's David, you know, like somebody somewhere said this. Um, where there's a recognition that that's also, that's a human who asked that question. Mm. What is man that thou art mindful of him? Mm. So uh, we might say that uh, perhaps a more Jewish way to approach at least their scriptures would be, there's a lot of people talking in there. (laughs) Okay. Okay. Um, God definitely speaks an awful lot, Mm -hmm. uh, but there are other voices. There are definitely human voices. Mm -hmm. You know, so you think about the Psalms, none of those are, you know, like God talking. I maybe be still and know that I am God, that's in one of them. But usually it's the human addressing God and often in great pain, right? The ones we call laments. So um, the idea that, that it's a, a sort of single big communication from God, I don't think is, is the Jewish understanding of those scriptures even as we encounter it through the New Testament. Mm-hmm. It's God speaks to us through these. Uh, we can hear other voices as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, we want to pay attention, of course, I think to all those voices, but, but know that especially God has a word for us. I think that's a different thing from saying, here's what you have to believe about this mm-hmm. book. Mm-hmm. You know, um, Sure. But, but there's certainly some convictions that are implied, I think. Okay. I think it's safe to say that. Yeah. So, you know, so we're jumping ahead, right? Because uh, today um, there's a lot of language about the inerrancy, the inspiration, um, right. a plenary uh, right. a word of God. And, um, and so we're jumping way past what others have said up into modern times to, to go, okay, so... Here, you know, we looked at the historic creeds where they say nothing. Right. And here, 
rather late breaking, you right. know, it, are some real, I mean, a lot of statements about the Bible. And I'm thinking in particular about the Chicago statement on mm-hmm. biblical inerrancy. And it's 24 articles, and it's all about wow. Scripture. 24, 24 just articles, on the Bible. Just on the Bible. That's a lot. And, and it also includes a short statement, a preface statement of five points before the 24 <laughs> articles. And so, and, and so the, the statement mm-hmm. right before the articles is the authority of Scripture is inescapably impaired if this total divine inerrancy is any way limited or disregarded. Mm-hmm. And so, and then it goes on. And I, I just, you know, I thought we might talk about each one of these in light of that rather complete statement about yes. the, the, the problem of disregarding divine inerrancy. In Article 15, it says, we affirm the doctrine of inerrancy is grounded in the teaching of the Bible about right. inspiration. Right. Okay. Uh, first of all, I think that he's, if you look in 16 where it says, we deny that inerrancy is a doctrine invented by scholastic Protestantism, um, I would say that I, I deny their denial. <laughs> um, I think that we have to recognize that um, I'm not at all denying good intentions on the part of those who constructed this statement. I do think it's, it's constructed uh, very obviously in the light of uh, what we might call the cri- crisis of modernity regarding what we know. And uh, if we've all heard of the Enlightenment. And, and so in the Enlightenment, the question really becomes, um, how can we know anything? And the Enlightenment answer is through reason. Through reason. And, and that's the Enlightenment answer. Uh, that's putting it very simply. Uh, what We still haven't escaped the, the issue of how do we know anything? Even if we don't like the Enlightenment's answer, we've kind of gotten stuck with the question. And the question became one of how can we be sure about this, that, or the other thing, or especially about our faith. Mm-hmm. And so in the light of the Enlightenment and, and the modern concern for certainty, uh, almost what we might think of as a scientific certainty, mm-hmm. where science almost becomes the model for mm-hmm. certainty, so it becomes important to have a text that has that kind of utter, total, I mean, to use this language, I'd want to know what does inerrancy mean for these folks? And mm-hmm. since we don't have all the statements, the problem is so much can be implied there mm-hmm. that you kind of go, and, and once you start poking at it, you wonder, well, do you really still mean inerrancy? What does that mean? Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But I do think, in fact, it arises out of a time of, the, of, of Protestantism where this, this real deep question, it's not a, and I don't think it's a, a trivial question, but the question of like certainty and how can I know, and, and uh, the, the Bible becomes like the guarantee book. And I do really think that early Christians, because they didn't wrestle with this same question, mm-hmm. they lived in a different era, 
They didn't, they didn't have any notions about uh, scientific veracity or you know, proof. That's not their world. Um, these kind of statements come out of a different world. And, and so I think, I think they're actually wrong in Article 16 to say what they do. Obviously, they would disagree with me. And that's mm -hmm. part of the problem. Who's, who's correct, right? right? How do we know? <laughs> yeah, how do we correct? know, right? <laughs> <laughs> and we'll come to this in a second. <clears throat> but it said, you know, back at 15, the teaching about the Bible itself. Right. About inspiration. Right. And in my uh, <clears throat> awareness, the Bible doesn't testify to its own infallibility or inerrancy. The Bible, Scripture itself does not make this claim about itself. No. As it, far as I know. Uh, well, it, it doesn't, and partly because, as we know, the Bible isn't like a single book that can do a self-reference like that. Mm -hmm. It's really much more like a library, mm -hmm. and it was uh, written and assembled over centuries. Um, I'm, I'm always mildly amused by this kind of claiming uh, grounded in the teaching of the Bible. So if we disagree, and I'm with you, uh, we disagree that the Bible makes that kind of a, a teaching. But if that's going to be your appeal, you have a much stronger argument with the Quran. Mm -hmm. Because the Quran actually does make that claim about itself a whole lot of times. Mm -hmm. Okay, And the Quran is much more of a single book mm -hmm. than the Bible is. So just taking on the pure level of logic, if, if we're going to say, well, the Bible says that it, this about itself, okay, well, if it doesn't, that, that's already a problem. But if you want a book that does say that about itself, go get a Quran, because it testifies about itself consistently that it is the very word of God. Because Muhammad was illiterate, right? Muhammad just is the uh, just receives the dictation, right? So I mean, there you don't even have like any human element as far as Muslims are concerned. Mm -hmm. And again, as far as what the Quran says of itself, mm -hmm. it is that that's what it is. Mm -hmm. It is God speaking, usually to Muhammad and telling Muhammad what to say to the people. Um, the Bible's a very different book from that. Very different book. So, so um, it's, it's, when it says, we affirm then in 16, we affirm that the doctrine of inerrancy has been integral to the church's faith throughout history. Well, we just looked at all of the creeds. Right, right. And so what is integral, it would seem to me to be what's in the creeds. I'm with you. Okay. And again, what we can say is that the creeds are offered as a an interpretive guide or rule mm -hmm. for reading the scriptures, mm -hmm. but there is not any statement about the nature of the scriptures in those creeds. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, mm -hmm. it's, which is an interesting thing. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. And, and then, and then this, this is interesting, and I don't think a lot of people who hold the biblical inerrancy uh, know this, but in Article 19, <laughs> It says that a confession of the full authority of infallibility and inerrancy of Scripture is vital to a sound understanding of the whole Christian faith. Mm -hmm. But then it goes on, we deny that such a confession is necessary to salvation. Which I go, whew, I'm glad. You know, I'm glad it's but, only but about... But if it's vital to a sound understanding of the whole of Christian faith, wow. That, that's an interesting distinction to make. 
right. as well, right? right? Like, maybe you're still saved. I guess that means when you die, you, you might get to heaven, but you have had never had a real sound understanding of the whole of Christian faith. Yeah, right. it's an goes, interesting statement. As it goes on to say, however, we further deny that inerrancy can be rejected without grave consequences, both to the individual and to the church. Right. And so, and so you get back to what you said was, what do they mean by inerrancy? What is meant? And, yes. and, you know, I think the more common understanding, whether that's meant or not, but I think it is when I read through all the articles, is it's just, it's completely accurate and true. There's, there's nothing, there's no inconsistencies. The inconsistencies are probably on our side of things. We're misunderstanding that. Mm -hmm. uh, but as I understand it, like the... It, Infallibility comes from the Latin word infallieri, which means, actually means does not deceive, mm. which to me is closer to a traditional Protestant understanding. A traditional one. Of what scripture is. It does not deceive. It yeah. doesn't deceive. Or a it, traditional Christian one, I think. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, so let's start then with, with scripture and what Scripture actually does say about itself mm -hmm. with regards to the claims uh, that mm -hmm. we've just looked at and right. I think are significant for all of our understanding and discussion of Scripture. So we're, we're looking at 2 Timothy 3, 14 through 17, and I'll read that. This is Paul, uh, Paul writing uh, claims. There's some dispute as to whether it's actually Paul, but we'll just say it's Paul writing to Timothy, but as for you, continue in what you have learned and firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have known the sacred writings that are able to instruct you for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Hmm. All scripture is inspired by God and is useful for teaching, for reproof, for correction or for training in righteousness. And I'll just finish at 17. So that everyone who belongs to God may be proficient, equipped for every good work. Yeah. So I, I noted that there's, there's two things. He, he notes sacred writings, and then he also talks about Scripture. Mm -hmm. And I'm, I'm wondering if Paul, may, we may need a New Testament pro here to tell us that Paul is maybe even referring to two different things. I suspect they might be. I would think that they're synonymous, yeah. but um, yeah, and I don't know if anybody could tell us. It, it, clearly, it's two different Greek terms, although I don't have, a, I say clearly because I'm assuming that, uh, but uh, which one do you want to look at? I mean, the interesting thing is the sacred writings are able to instruct you for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Maybe there is a distinction, because as you read that, I wondered, that sounds like that could include Gospels, mm -hmm. doesn't it? Mm -hmm. um, instructing you for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Um, that, that may not be simply talking about the Jewish Bible. So, so Scripture, Paul would be referring, as a, as a Jew, yeah. well-trained, yeah. He would be referring to what we, uh, parts, maybe not even all, of the Old Testament. Certainly the Law and the Prophets, I would think. I think as a Pharisee, he'd probably do pretty much what we think of as the Old okay. Testament. Okay, okay. 
what I'm not, and it is an interesting question about whether or not that's different from the sacred writings. But in any case, yes, verse 16, all scripture. Yes, I think we think he means there uh, what we mean by the Old Testament. Okay, and so. So, so we do kind of have a New Testament statement about the Old Testament, mm -hmm. we could say. Yeah. So I have no problem attributing this to Paul, I don't but I don't have any problem with the arguments of other scholars. Right. But I do think that what's important is if Paul did write this, it would have been written before 64, the year 64 CE, because Paul was Oh, that's a good point. Killed. Well, so maybe the Gospel of Mark, if any gospel. <laughs> right, so, so he could not have been referring to any other gospel, really besides the Gospel of Mark at right, that point. Right, right, Because Matthew... Those are later. Those are later. Yeah. So when we say all scripture, it, uh, or sacred writings, if we lump in, right. it, we're, we've only got one, uh, perhaps. And it does seem very likely that these are synonymous. Okay. I mean, to have them that close together, I, I get, who knows for sure? Right. This is one of those places where you could say, nobody knows for sure. Right. And so even if we say the Bible is inerrant, we still don't know what it means. <laughs> right. so, in this case, like we can't be sure exactly what Paul has in mind with right. these two terms. Well, speaking of what we can't be sure Paul has in mind, we come to this word, all scripture is inspired by God. Yes which is the Greek word theopneustos. Yes. And uh, God, theo, God breathed. God breathed. Breathed yes. by God. Now, that word is, as we've talked about, what we know as a hapex legomena. That word, a hapex legomena, is a word that doesn't occur anywhere else in the history of written language up until this point. That's pretty crazy, yeah. So, so, so translators have to kind of guess, and they guess, penuma, breathe, or mm -hmm. spirit, and mm -hmm. theo, God, and so inspired by mm -hmm. God is mm -hmm. pretty good. But, but then we come, some say, God, breathe, mm -hmm. and then that by implying that, that it, God put it all out there, all scripture, right. they lump in, the whole of the New Testament that mm -hmm. couldn't have been referred to in this writing right. because of the timing and imply that all of that is sort of... There's, there's, there's a lot there, isn't there? Yeah. Um, the first thing, again, as, as we see, for Paul, what Scripture is useful for is for teaching, for reproof, for correction and for training in righteousness. So that inspiration has a purpose. Um, and it's not like, uh, there's nothing here about it being inerrant in all matters whatsoever about which it speaks. Mm -hmm. uh, now some people read Theopuesnos, God inspired, and assume that must mean what it means. Mm -hmm. But the text itself tells us what scripture is useful for. Um, and we could even say it's useful for instructing us in salvation through mm -hmm. faith in Christ Jesus mm -hmm. and for shaping us in righteousness and so on. Um, and, and what happens then, though, again, with this enlightenment issue of what we know is a concern that the Bible do more than that, mm -hmm. that somehow it's got to tell us 
And whatever it tells us about, it has to tell us perfectly, because after all, it was inspired by God. But those are concerns brought to this passage, mm-hmm. which says nothing about science or history or psychology or anatomy or any such thing, but about salvation and righteousness and being trained to be a godly person. And that's the function that I see for Scripture. I think that's really, again, a good place to stop because next week or next time, our next session, rather, we'll be looking at this a little bit more deeply and using it as a springboard into Sounds other great. texts. Sounds great. So thank you. Thank you so thank much. Thank you. For you this know I love doing it. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> 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 Woo. It's sometimes when you're up here doing this, realizing that you're trying to get this right for a, for a podcast, you're like, whoo, I hope I'm not blowing this, you know, so... So, uh, so we have uh, some time just for some more questions, ones that, again, you may have thought of that we can be thinking about for later. Um, I do want to say that if you want to look up, at, um, you can go on the web and look up the Chicago Statement on Biblical Inerrancy and download the, the, the whole thing. Um, and and read, that came out in when, 1970? 1978. 78, okay. Yeah, well, well, let's go with Jean-Marie, and then we'll go with Anne-Marie. <laughs> Good name, Jean-Marie. Those ones are old, yeah. <laughs> right, right. We'll, we'll, we will, um, I think, get to that a little bit about the where, so I'll say right here, but we'll go over it in the podcast. A lot uh, of inerrantists will trace inerrancy back to Augustine, and, um, and I think we agree that that ignores a lot of what Augustine said, uh, you know, it's proof texting Augustine, uh, and then, uh, and some people call him Augustine, and I always switch back and forth. I never know either. I, I've had to settle on Augustine, but yeah. it's the same guy as we say Augustine. Yeah, yeah. And, um, and then it really came to the fore as something uh, that was more... I guess, asserted in, in the mid-1800s. So really late-breaking. And, and I think there's reasons for that. But we will, we will cover, I, I think we will cover that when um, we're in about the seventh session that we're doing where we talk about the uh, inerrancy doctrine as over and against traditional Protestant doctrine, which is... Further back, not that much further back, you know, but, but 350 years, yeah. you know, further back. But, it's, but as far as this statement, um, it's not a particular church. I know that. I, it's a group I, it of was a group of theologians, evangelical biblical theologians, theologians who uh, certainly were pushing back against the sort of thing that <laughs> your <laughs> pastor and I are discussing here. <laughs> And um, 
it was a time, the 1970s was actually a very significant time of some real controversy about these issues, like what's the nature of the Bible. There was a book, I'm not saying the book created this conference, but there was a book called The Battle for the Bible. And uh, the author, I think, was a man named Harold Linzel, who had been editor of Christianity Today, which is the leading uh, evangelical Christian magazine. And um, in this book, by the way, you know, I'm a Nazarene, and he, came, he went after the Nazarenes for, and we're pretty conservative, and he went after our manual statement about the Bible, our, our denominational statement. He said, look at these Nazarenes, they're, you know, on the same slippery slope. And really the issue was, it really finally, for many people, I think where the rubber hits the road comes down to issues of science. Like, and, and I'm not going to say that's always what inerrancy is about, but so often the arguments go back to Genesis 1. And then like, is this a literal depiction of things? And if so, like even then like, how old is the earth? You know, where do the dinosaurs fit in? Is evolution, you know, all of those kinds of things. And, the, and again, without knowing the minds of all these people who are signers of this document, their general approach would be uh, the Bible is authoritative on any and every topic which it addresses or speaks about, okay? And well, oh yes, yeah. this would be about the, the, the whole thing. And, and see, again, what we're kind of trying to push back toward is, does the Bible actually say that about itself? See, they're making these claims for the Bible. And so as the, the way that I would frame it is, you know, as I would say, uh, conservative means sticking close to what it says about itself. That that's actually the right. conservative approach is... And the, the, a liberal or progressive approach is to, to not even care what it says about itself. So, Anne Marie, you had a question. Yeah, pretty pretty influential people for a, a good swath of Christianity in America, certainly. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Oh, if what women's movement reactionary a little well, bit. Well, sure. I mean, I think because all of those issues were, yeah. So, the, yeah, probably some. Well, and I, but hard I, to know. But I right. think it was around this time that Dr. Richard Leakey found the the bones. Oh, that, you I know, think, might have been a little later, yeah, but I'm, I'm not sure. Yeah, I'm not sure. I think it's, I Could have been. So, yeah, there, there's, but I do think you're right that the inerratist position has tended then to undergird more um, hierarchical attitudes and practices about men and women or women in the ministry and, you know, all kinds of things for sure. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, for sure. Yeah. The, the one thing, and maybe, and I know we're, in case you don't come next week, you know, I mean, we... Um, and I think we'll talk about it next week. 
the Bible does talk about things being God-breathed. We're going to do that next yes, week. Oh, yes. Then we'll save it for next week. Uh, but I think it's kind of important, like, well, what does the Bible actually say about what happens to something when God breathes into it mm. or upon it? And you might already think of some examples of that. Uh, but the notion that something is God-breathed and therefore without error is like, that's quite a leap, A, in logic, and B, why would one make that assumption? Especially given that the text itself doesn't make any such claim. It says it's useful for instruction and righteousness and so on. I mean, great purposes, but sort of to expand the Bible then to be this history, science, whatever else kind of, you know, book. Yeah. Uh, There's definitely a tradition there that I think comes out of the Enlightenment and a scientific model yeah. of what is true, mm -hmm. right? Does, if that makes sense. Yeah. Any other, any other questions? Yeah, Denise. Oh, n not no. 15, no, 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 just the first, more like 50 years. Um, we, would, we would call that the church already, right? That's mm -hmm. still the church. There's mm -hmm. a church, Paul writes to churches, right, in the mm -hmm. first century, the church at Corinth, the church in Rome. No, well, no, we're not associating it necessarily with a building, the people, Right. Though, though it's a, right, it is interesting that earlier, early Jewish followers of Jesus were at home in Jewish gathering places. Oh, they, they, were, they went to synagogue. They went to synagogue. And they, so, did. they certainly went to the temple uh, in Jerusalem. Uh, the synagogue became a difficult, it, it was a few decades into Christianity when that we talked about it a little while ago, this, I can't remember what word I used, but anyway, this parting of the ways, I think, happened. Um, but yeah, even then, uh, for Christians, church always meant primarily the people I gather with, probably in a household. Well, not so much. Um, that's again, maybe some, but the, the bigger issue was it was becoming more and more of a Gentile movement anyway. So, and I, part of it is like, let's say I have five new Gentiles, non-Jews in, in this gathering. That's going to make it maybe just that less attractive <laughs> to this Jewish person over here. Um, maybe they're not, you know, maybe not entirely, but still it's like, where's the Jewishness? in this mm, mm. and and so it wasn't it, it wasn't that very many Jew, I doubt a very many Jews ever dropped kosher I don't think Paul encouraged Jews to drop kosher um, he, he he discouraged Gentiles from thinking they needed to take on the Torah that's the real message of Paul but what you get then is a Gentile movement over time, over a generation or two, that's going to become less and less Jewish and less and less attractive to Jewish folks 
they'll probably just stick with their synagogue, you know. Um, and they did tend to have buildings, yeah, synagogue buildings much earlier, I think, than there were churches. But Yeah, you found them, good for you. Cool. Of course. Remember what we said earlier about like doctrine is a conversation over time. So a lot of times those, those denominational differences, they show up precisely for that reason. Because over time, there was some conversation that happens that might lead to a difference or at least to some uh, amending of you know, what we believe. Um, yeah, I mean, that's part of the, it's a, it's a long conversation that we're part of when we're part of the Christian community. Mm -hmm. um, a conversation I love, by the way, mm -hmm. of course, I get to teach about it all the time. It's always a conversation. Yeah, it should. It really should be. Yes, you know, I, I like that way of framing it. Yeah, which is what we're, why we're doing this. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. This is this is why we need community, and why there are you know I mean not to put ourselves up as authorities, but people who, you know, uh, study this stuff. So not so that we can become smarter than everybody else, but so that we can teach it. And, um, you know, teach it to you and the, to the folks in the podcast. Um, and yeah. I would say we want to do it because we love it. And oh, we love, I love mean, I, just, I think we love our faith. Uh, to find a theologian that loves the Bible as much as so Michael. So weird. It's so strange. <laughs> and, uh, uh, and, and, you know, that's, it's a joy. But I think, I, you know, I think what people worry about when we start talking about things, is are we trying to undermine the authority of the Bible? And it's actually the opposite. Um, uh -huh. We're trying to actually give an accurate understanding of the Bible's authority so that it's not built upon uh, sandy soil. You know, because the minute, like, for example, you hmm. find out that this statement that's always cited from, from Paul, all scriptures inspired by God, and, and, and well, that the Gospels were not written when Paul wrote that, only maybe Mark, then you start going, wait a second, I, I thought that meant the whole Bible. And so the minute you encounter that, say, as a, as a college student, right. you go, I've been sold a bill of goods. Right. And it... And it really knocks the whole thing down, and I'd rather not do that. So we don't do that here at St. Paul's. In our confirmation class, you know, we talk about this. And as a matter of fact, I'll try and have this uh, next week. We hand out this, how the Bible came to be in our confirmation class. Let's put it together. It's a really good document and, and talks about, you know, why the Bible, books of the Bible were accepted as authoritative, the ones that were, and stuff like that. And we'll probably go over that a little bit next week, but... But I think this is, um, I think this, I, I, I think the last thing, I'll, I'll say it like this, I think that what we're trying to do is make sure that we have the right operating system installed 
Mm. Right? So if, you, if, you put a, if you're on an Apple computer and you use a Windows operating system, it's not going to work real well. Maybe that's my problem. <laughs> Maybe that's it. You got the wrong software. But, but um, so what I feel like our work and hope is, is to actually say, okay, here's the, here's the Protestant, the more historic operating system. And we've sort of let this other operating system take prominence, and mm. it's not the right operating system for, for our understanding of right. what Scripture really is, and that will lead us to interpret it in mistaken ways. And we want to avoid that. We obviously don't want to interpret Scripture in mistaken ways and call that God-honoring. Right. You know, that's the opposite. So. Well said. Thank you. Thank you, everybody. Gosh, thank you for coming. Thank yeah. you for coming. Gosh, it's fun to have you guys out there to, to Thanks for your interaction and questions. Hope you'll come next week.